You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. We are all born innocent, makes you wonder where it went. The dollars and the days you spend are handed back in change. not a myth you may catch a glimpse of it how and when you can't predict it slips away again comes in waves five years ago singer-songwriter burke and grafia's life fell apart his marriage was annulled he moved out of new orleans and quit his teaching job because he didn't have the emotional resources to give his students what they needed And maybe the worst part of it was he couldn't write songs about his experiences that well had dried up. In the midst of this, he decided to join the Society of Jesus and begin the long process of becoming a Jesuit. But his experience at the novitiate taught him that this was not his calling, and it pushed him back to his vocation as a musician and songwriter. The result, all these years later, is his new album, Waves, which is out now on CD, LP, and the usual streaming services. And I'm delighted that it's brought him on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, Burke. Thanks so much, Michael. Well, I like to begin interviews with musicians by asking them to position their record in the grand scheme of recorded pop music. So what two or three records would you say inhabit the same universe, as it were, as Waves? Oh, goodness. Well, there are several songwriters who I really admire and have been influenced by. I don't know that any of them have done a single album like this. I don't I, I don't know... There's such a mix of genres. Um, there are I can maybe give you some artists that have influenced me, but maybe not whole records. Sure. Does that work? Uh, I've been very much influenced by a uh, jazz pianist and songwriter named Mose Allison, uh, who was a jazz pianist originally from Mississippi, who who, um, who was a really well-known uh, jazz pianist and songwriter in New York and, and worldwide, really. He, he passed away a few years ago, but... Very, very witty jazz songwriter. Uh, there's another songwriter who I really admire, who I got to see actually a couple weekends ago, named John Gorka, who's a who's a, a folky singer-songwriter. Has been around quite a while. Um, really been influenced by him a lot. I have been influenced by uh, some other folk songwriters, singer-songwriters, people like David Wilcox and Greg Brown and and uh, Towns Van Zant and, and some other songwriters like that. I uh, and then I grew up in New Orleans, so I have uh, I have a lot of that sound and a lot of that um, traditional jazz and and brass band sound that's not necessarily on my recordings, but some of that feel and some of that that laid back feel of the New Orleans uh, groove behind the beat. Um, there's a lot of that in my record too. Sure, I hear that. And and as you say, it's a very diverse record in terms of genre. It, it starts off as this kind of folk pop singer-songwriter record, but then very quickly it turns into a jazz album or like a, a swamp rock album on, on <laughs> one track. And it is it is quite diverse. Here here are the three I came up with, and I'm, I'm interested okay. to hear what you think. So I, I, <laughs> okay. I, have, I have James Taylor's Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon. I love that record. I've yeah. listened to that since I was a teenager. And I, I got to say that my, my wife loves James Taylor. I can't stand him, but I liked the <laughs> James Taylor influence in your songs. Yes, it's definitely there. That uh, Mudslide Slim uh, has so many great songs like uh, Machine Gun Kelly mm-hmm. and Isn't It Nice to Be Home Again. I think that's on that record, too. 
And then the Mudslide Slim and the Blue Horizon, that's a, uh, that's a great tune. So yeah, that's, a, that's definitely in my head bouncing around a lot. Then I got Paul Simon, Still Crazy After All These Years. Yeah, that's another one. That, um, I'm not familiar with, I don't know that I know every song on that particular record, but um, the album, but the uh, Paul Simon's uh, Greatest Hits, all of those tunes, um, St. Judy's Comet, mm-hmm. uh, what else on that record, um, uh, Loves Me Like a Rock, Kodachrome, all those tunes, uh, there's a big part of me uh, that it's very influenced by Paul Simon. In fact, uh, I, have a, I have a great book, it's called Songwriters on Songwriting, and it interviews a lot of different songwriters, and... There's an interview of Paul Simon in there, and there's a lot that he said about songwriting that really resonates with me. Um, one is that, well, first of all, my voice is kind of similar to his in, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's 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 a it's a tenor voice and it's a little bit softer. Um, but what he said about his own voice is that he writes for his own voice, and he knows that his voice is kind of believable for some reason. It's uh, just because of the the tone of it, and uh, I think that. Uh, when I when I write, I I write for my own voice for sure in a lot of ways that he does. And then the other thing he said I think that resonates with me is that um, what he does in a lot of his songs, and I don't do it half as well as he does, but a lot of times if you listen to that 70s Paul Simon songwriting, there is a um, he kind of meets you halfway. He he basically puts out a bunch of photographs in his words, and then he lets people bring to it what they have themselves. And mm-hmm. so he does he doesn't force a a story necessarily. He doesn't force a, a, a ideology on you. But he he kind of just brushes with big wide strokes and then lets you as the listener meet him halfway and and I really love that. And the other the reason I pick Still Crazy, I'm I'm a big Paul Simon fan, but the reason I pick Still Crazy after all these years is to me that's his album where he tries to cope with middle age where, where he's trying to figure out what it means to not be young, but not be old. And, uh, yes. that, I, I see you doing something very similar here. Yeah. And also on that record too, um, in that time in his life, he was exploring a lot of different, um, harmonies. If you listen to that period, the Paul seventies, Paul Simon, he's not, um, it's not the Simon and Garfunkel, um, harmonies. He's doing some complicated, jazz uh jazz harmonies in in a lot of that music you hear a lot of it in the Wurlitzer the Fender Rhodes that he's using uh on keys so so yeah that's that's a that's a good fit I'm, I'm glad you picked that one because I love that sound and the third one I'm not sure if you'll know or not but it's by a guy called Mark Hurd he put out a record called Eye of the Storm in 1983 that I think kind of rhymes with this one in some ways do you know Hurd I don't I don't but i I'm interested. He's a he kind of he he was very loosely involved in like Christian rock, but I I think I, I hesitate to even say that because I think his his talent goes well beyond that narrow arena. But that that was a record he kind of made at home. It's much more sparse than yours, but I, okay. I think I think it has a, a similar urge to comfort, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'll have to get his name from you. Yeah, and and remember that. On Twitter, I told you how much I'd been enjoying this record, and I called it Plague Music at its best and most comforting, which is, which is obviously what we all need right now, right? Sure. Uh, you, you had no idea, I'm sure, when you were writing and recording this, that we'd be listening to it in the middle of a pandemic. But I wonder if you agree that it fits that situation pretty well. Well, 
I, I think that my music, um, one thing that I uh, like to put into my music um, is hope and uh, a little bit of humor. And um, it's it's definitely not praise and worship music, and it's it's in no way, none of these songs is suitable for a liturgy. Um, but there is a... There is an element of Christian hope, I think, that's threaded through all of the songs, and hopefully people listening to it can get a good laugh at times and, and maybe find something a little bit hopeful, maybe something a little bit sweet in some of the lyrics, and um, the songs can give people a little diversion and make them feel a little better while they're uncertain about the future. Uh, as I said in my intro, it, it seems like you had writer's block for a long time before writing the songs that make up Waves. And I, I think anyone who lis- who's listening to this who writes casually or professionally is aware of that particular frustration. And I wonder if you have any insight on where writer's block comes from and what we can do to unblock it. That's a good question. Um, a lot of times I feel like writing is not so much something that I do as much as something that I ready myself for. Um, there is a bit of work involved. It, it requires um, it requires time. Music is um it's an art form in time. So in order to create it, it requires time. So you have to allow yourself um, large chunks of time to to be able to write. Um, that that doesn't mean you have to do it all at once, but you have to prepare yourself for a mindset where you're you're allowing a, a melody to run through your head or a different uh, lyrical concept to run through your head in a way that you still have to be productive in everyday life. And um, I think that's an important part of it. Uh, as far as writer's block goes, I think some of the time it requires getting out of your own head getting out of your own problems, maybe turning them over to God, or just if if you're not a particularly religious person, maybe try just breathing and just trying to uh, stop being egotistical in a way, which is hard for me. It's hard for a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, but just um, trying, to, trying to get outside of yourself and looking at the world – a little bit differently and maybe not not dwelling on your own life or problems and, and definitely not dwelling on the writer's block itself, um, which is all easy to say and hard to do. But um, but I think that's part of that's the trick. It, it strikes me there are very few good songs written about writer's block. I, I mean, I don't think <laughs> I don't I don't re, I don't hear any of the songs on here as being about writer's block exactly. But it, 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 it's weird that you would say to not think about it. And, and it, it makes sense because, I, like I said, I can't really think of a great song about not being able to write a song. <laughs> that's pretty funny. That, um, maybe that's something that if I'm not feeling writer's block, I'll try to do. You may not feel it strongly enough to, to write about it. That's right. Unless, unless maybe I take notes when I have it and then come back to those notes. What role does grace play in this whole process? In the, in the title track, you talk about waking up in the middle of the night with a song in your head, and then you say, it's up to me to get it right. And in Dusty Old Clock, you say, now is the time, here is the place, some of it's mine, most of it's grace. What is the it there? And, and how is the artistic process a working out of our cooperation with grace to use uh, Catholic language? Well, I think everything starts from grace. 
um, I know that there's a big, um, you know, non, non-argument argument among different Christian denominations about the role of works and grace. <clears throat> um, it's really a, a non-argument that's already, that's been settled. And we all believe that it all starts with grace. Um, even, even prayer, even the act of prayer starts with God coming to you. Um, and so, if you, um, if, if you just allow God to, uh, to come to you, um, and, and let God's grace fill you, I think that's where it all, it all starts. There is an element, though, of the work that you have to put into it in order to, to create something. I think that there is a, there's a skill involved. There is experience and there's trial and error and there's things that you learn along the way that, um, that are started by grace, but then you end up, uh, fulfilling those things through your own, um, your ability to, to write songs. I mean, you could just pour out, you could pour out your prayers into one, uh, one big long stream of consciousness and that's one way to write, I, I suppose. But to really craft songs, you have to really figure out a way to take that, um, take that whatever you've learned from that grace in your life, and perhaps uh, figure out a way to use as few words as possible. Um, that's a there's there's a real trick to songwriting, especially popular mm-hmm. songwriting. Uh, if you can say more with fewer words, that's a really good way to write songs, especially for a wider audience. Well, it's like you were saying about Simon painting with these big, big brushstrokes and then letting other people fill in the gaps. Or I think of like good country music is about leaving holes where the listener's emotion kind of fills out the song. And so it, it means something. It's not like good country music is esoteric, but um, the, the emotions belong to the person listening as much as to the person singing or writing it. Absolutely. And you, um, as as the world starts to read less and watch video more and um, and have a little bit more of a, a, a passive forms of learning, uh, the words that you use have to become more simplified. Uh, I could never I don't think I could pull off using a word like transubstantiation in a pop song. That just doesn't work, even though it's an important concept to think about. It just doesn't really address a wider audience. There's a, um, there's a songwriter I love who passed away a few years ago. His name's Guy Clark, if you're familiar with his work. Sure. Yeah, L.A. Freeway, right? Um, I don't know that one, um, but I know, um, I know I've listened to some of his songs, and they're brilliant because he uses one-syllable words in the most exquisite ways. Um, if, you are, if any of you out there are songwriters or you want to listen to really high-quality songs, uh, look up Guy Clark. Look up some of his stuff. It's really, really good. A lot of those outlaw country guys from from that era do that really, really well. And, and I mean, I don't hear a whole lot of country music in in your in your record here. But no, I do think I do think that approach is present. Yeah, well, there's um, it's definitely folk music, and you know, country and folk are lumped together so much um, in the big music machine the big music business machine i mean if you are trying to uh, put a genre on my music in itunes it has to be country and folk i mean they just kind of lump those all together so there's an element of simplicity in both of those styles of music there's i get i don't i forget who said it but it's basically three chords and the truth 
Um, and that's some of my songs, but then a lot of my other songs have a lot of major sevenths and diminished chords and that jazzier sound to it. Oh, they all come from the blues originally anyway, right? I think so. I think that there's a, yeah, well, well, the jazz definitely comes from the blues, not really, really smooth jazz. That's really not blues jazz, but, um, sure. But, but the jazz tradition, um, the, the jazz tradition of the two, five, one progression that comes out of the four, five, one, which is a, a blues progression. Even the rhythm changes in, uh, in jazz that, that ultimately comes from the blues and then country. Yeah. I think that country and, and the blues kind of come from the same, same culture, um, I think um, the blues was more of an African-American art form and country was probably a little more of a European-American art form. But they really do come from the same world, same time. Well, I want to talk about the lyrics on this record because it seems to me they walk a very fine line. They're very positive. You talk about hope. Um, but they manage not to fall into self-helpism or, or into <laughs> platitude, which I think must have been a real... Um, a real danger when you're when you're writing about hopeful stuff, especially as a Christian, because so much self-consciously Christian music is uh, platitudinous. How aware of that balancing act were you when you wrote the album, or is it something that just kind of worked itself out? Well, I don't I don't really think about it a whole lot. Um, I I try to write the way that I talk, and I don't always. I mean, I don't have a I don't have a dirty mouth or anything, but I. You know, I hear words and I, I use words that you're probably not going to hear um, on Christian radio in some of my songs. Uh, I think that it's a good sense of humor um, is important. I think, who was it? Was it Kierkegaard who said that, that humor is a is a valid form of spirituality? Um, I, I don't know that one, but it yeah, could I be. Think, I think maybe Kierkegaard said something along those lines. I could, could have that mistaken. But I, I think that, um, I, I think that... I'm I'm a firm believer in um, something that I read from a philosopher named Jacques Maritain. I don't know if you're familiar with Maritain, but oh, absolutely, yeah. I read uh, Art and Scholasticism. I think is the book I read by him. Yeah, so that's that's free online if anybody wants to look that up. But um, he says in Art and Scholasticism that if you're trying to make Christian art, don't make Christian art. Be Christian and make art. There's a big difference there. Um, and so if you can really work on your skill as an artist in a way, in a certain context, in a way um, that you are trying to uh, convey a certain emotion in a popular context that an, that an audience already understands, where they already understand the form, and there's a certain sense of skill and maybe authenticity in what you're trying to do, if you try to cram in some sort of uh, philosophy or theology into the art, it doesn't really work. There are, there are instances where it does, but for the most part, it's just – it's kind of mucked up a little bit where you're trying to use this – maybe it's a beautiful uh, theological concept, but the art needs to stand on its own. And, um, and what Maritain says is work on the art. Work on yourself. Uh, one is the virtue of prudence, and one is the virtue of art. And work on both of those things, and then uh, your faith will pour into your work. And and I, I don't really, um, I can't really market this necessarily to Christian radio or Catholic radio or anything like that. Maybe some of the songs, some of the songs would work, but for the most part, it's not really doesn't really fit into that. Um, 
to what they're looking for in order to sell ads, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's always been that art and commerce problem. And when it's when it's Christian, Christian media, you, you have an additional theological problem that's added to that. And it all gets it all gets tangled up together, and I'm sure that's why most of it's not very good. Yeah, well, some I think I think there's a tendency in a lot of um, Christian radio is one the production is is very very compressed, like pop. There's not there's not a lot uh-huh. of breathing room. There's not a lot of dynamics. It's just like a big wall of sound um, with big um, you know with the drums and the and the vocals just all kind of sounding like one big wall of sound. And then the other thing I, I find a lot when I listen to some of that music is that songs written in the first person singular—I'm sorry, the second person singular—where you, it's it's you know it, they're prayers to God, which are it's beautiful, but there's a tendency to to make the, all the songs in the um, second person. What did I say? Second person singular. Yeah, that's what you said. And so, and that's a nice that's a nice way to write a song, but not every song. I don't think. I think that that gets a little stale after a while. Well, I mean, I will say this: you have. I'm, I'm looking through the. Uh, I'm looking through the track listing here. You have at least five songs here that are in second person singular, although they're not addressing God, as far as I can tell. They're addressing, I guess, the listener. Um. Yeah. Probably. They're. They're not. They're not addressed to God. And I guess. I guess what I was saying is. Is that. Yeah. All. A lot of the songs, on Christian radio, are are addressing God and not necessarily telling a story or. or um. Or maybe describing a human experience as much as it is um, telling God that you love Him, but and that's important. But like I said, uh, maybe not every song. Well, the the thing that strikes me about a lot of Christian radio music is how uh, how nonspecific the lyrics are. I I taught at a Christian college and I'd have to go to chapel every so often, and uh, I would amuse myself while they were singing the um, the the praise and worship songs by seeing whether I could change the meaning of the song if I substituted the word God for Baal. And often you, often it doesn't change the meaning at all because the lyrics are so generic yeah. that they could be addressed to any deity whatsoever. And, and so, I mean, again, the, the concreteness of pop songwriting is one of its strengths, right? And, and this is, again, something I think country music does really well. And, and it's something that I see on, on this record as well. There's nothing abstract here, even when you're offering – comfort to a person it feels like it's coming out of the real world and going back into the real world not uh not floating off in the ether somewhere yeah that that's important and and thank you for noticing that i um i have a a, a master's degree in the humanities from the university of dallas uh, which is a it's a great program in dallas um it's a catholic university there and um I went in to originally study, uh, get my master's in theology. Uh, at the time, it didn't really uh, speak to me as, as I thought maybe it would. Uh, so I ended up just finishing with a master's in the humanities. And I, I learned a lot about the way good writers write literature and, and how they use, uh, they use physical objects in order to convey uh, what they're, they're trying to – they use physical objects instead of I, – abstract ideas in order to tell a better story or to allow people to maybe wrap their minds around something finite, which then will lead them to maybe a, a bigger meaning. 
Yeah, well, it's it's a very Catholic approach to things. It, the the whole idea of the sacraments is that instead of the abstraction, you get the concrete object, which instantiates the abstract concept, right? Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think that there's uh, some sacramental, lowercase s sacramental, about the arts uh, as a, as a Catholic, um, and probably as um, uh, many other Christian denominations too, but I think it's I think it's very prominent, um, especially going inside a Catholic church and seeing so many uh, pieces of art and stained glass windows and um, and statues and and beauty. I mean, some of the churches made in uh, post Vatican II are just plain ugly. They're just terrible. They're just ugly churches. But if you if you go to an older church um, in Europe or if you go to one of the older churches in the United States. There's really, I mean, there's really a lot of thought put into the architecture and a lot of the um, the beauty of the of the church conveys a message about the beauty of God. But then also the the tangible things that you can you can see and touch and smell um, help to lead the mind to those abstract thoughts. Well, and, and that seems to me again to be something that's often missing from. Um consciously christian art is the the notion that beauty means anything whatsoever because it's message 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 yeah um that that could be true um i as somebody who's who is is catholic and and uh, i have uh, most of my experience of of religion is filled with that I, I don't know that i have the experience to to exactly confirm or deny what you're saying um but it's sure I, think that I think that you're right I think that a lot of times there is message with a lot um, of just ideas maybe words instead of uh, beauty that maybe transcends words well let's go let's get back to the the individual songs on the record here most okay, of them, sure. most of them feel very autobiographical and personal to me and the one exception is this uh, Randy Newman-esque character study <laughs> called business as usual it, it, it's loathsome yes. narrator is a smarmy <laughs> salesman I am a salesman, but please, please just think of me as your best friend. I work on commission, it's a missionary position. I stay on top of what I've got to say to make you spend. Maybe smooth and smarmy I got cool clothes and skills But my company needs me To pay the bills It's the artful con It's the bad kind of beautiful Call it what you want I call it business as usual Uh, where did that song come from? Uh, that song comes from, well, it started off as another song. It started off as a song that I was going to write about um, St. Bernardine, who is in the Catholic world of saints, is the patron saint of advertising, which I thought was kind of a strange patron saint thing to be. And so I started writing this song, and it just didn't work. It, like I just couldn't get anything to, to work right. 
And I took that song, I workshopped it. I went to um, the Glenn Workshop, which is put on by the Image Journal. I don't know if you're familiar with the Image Journal, but it's a it's a quarterly journal, and their tagline is Art, Faith, and Mystery. And every year they do a workshop in Santa Fe, New Mexico called the Glenn Workshop. And so I went one year, and I took this song, half written about St. Bernardine, and I think I had another jazz uh, – I had a, I had a jazz progression also completely separate from, from this song. And I workshopped it, and it just – I couldn't get it to work. And then about the third day into the workshop, I said, well, what if I tr- – try putting it into this jazz progression and then the name bernardine turned into bernie and then i just came up with the name bernie berman and he was just this salesman who um who was who's just pretty pretty icky and that whole idea actually came from i i worked for a little while i lived in mobile alabama and i worked for this tech company in mobile alabama and we had these sales guys that basically could say whatever they wanted to and I worked with the customer service team, and these sales guys would just basically say whatever they wanted to say and um, and could get away with it, and the customer would spend their money, and then the customers would get angry at customer service because the sales guys sold something that we didn't really sell. And so um, so it was a combination of all those, those things in my life that kind of came together. And that song, actually, once I got the idea, it – it became to to add it to the jazz progression. It uh, it that song just basically wrote itself in a matter of a day. I mean, I worked really hard at it, but uh, but I sing it today the same way I wrote it. I guess I wrote that um, about that song I wrote about eight years ago. That was one of the only songs I wrote during that dry period. Uh, it's a great song, and it it, uh, it kind of comes out of nowhere because the the first three <laughs> songs are so sincere, and that one is. <laughs> is so uh acid you know it's uh it's a pretty nasty song really the way randy newman's songs are kind of nasty yeah well randy newman one of his songs they're all in the third person he's um well they're not in the third person they're always from uh the point of view of a third person they're always from the point of view of a narrator um and he writes in a way where you think he's saying something but he's not he's he's a he's in character and so, so in that song i'm in character and yeah, there's some unsavory words in that song, um, but uh, but I love playing it because it's it's got it's got a payoff for the people who are really listening instead of just casually listening. I'm very interested in one line in particular from that song. You say it's okay. the art the artful con, it's the bad kind of beautiful, and we were just talking about beauty. And there's a sentimental way that religious people sometimes have of talking about beauty, and it's maybe best exemplified from that line from Dostoevsky that gets tossed around everywhere: "Beauty will save the world." So I'm very yes. interested in this the bad kind of beautiful and the extent to which you conceived of that as a counterpoint to Dostoevsky. Um. Well, th- what I guess, guess what I meant by that is that sometimes beauty is described as um, something that has um, what are the attributes of, of beauty? Um, proportion, I think, is one. Uh, and there's there's when when something's beautiful, it, it's it's elegant in a way that maybe like uh, equals mc squared is is an elegant mathematical statement. And so. Um, I guess it's um, I guess it's the type of beauty that is absent from um, the one component of beauty, which is generally glory or or radiance. So it's there's a certain um, simplicity and and proportion to it 
but it, it lacks the, the radiance of God. So I think that's maybe where I came up with that. It's the bad kind of beautiful. There, there is a kind of beauty to some of the, the objects of, uh, of advertising too. I mean, it's, we, we've all been taken in by, by some of these things and it, it makes sense to me, but then it, it really, it really complicates this notion we have the, of the, of the transcendental beauty, you know, that beauty is truth and truth is goodness and all of these things are kind of properties of being. Well, right. Well, with advertising, I mean, candy sells, you know, broccoli doesn't sell. You don't see a lot of like sexy commercials about broccoli, you know, and it's, it's because things like candy, things like M&Ms and, and, and candy, they're sugary sweet and they're, they're easy to sell and fast food, you know, they're not good for you. But there's a certain there's a certain allure to those things that we think is beautiful uh, from the packaging or or just the immediate taste on our tongues. But really, they're not good for us. And so um, in a sense, there's a there's a false beauty to those things that don't really um, they don't really add to the benefits of the the human of human nature. And, and they don't benefit us according to our nature. The most esoteric lyric on Waves is Above and Below, which references the Mississippi River, Pistol Pete Maravich, your parents' cancer diagnoses, Mardi Gras, and the first creation narrative in Genesis 1. <laughs> Below the top of the river, rushing by on three sides, water above the weather, in the time of Pistol Pete I was only knee high. enough of a new critic to resist the notion that songs mean something but what work do you conceive of that song as doing well so in genesis god separates the waters above from the waters below and it's it's really meant to um it's in one way symbolize order as opposed to chaos and i grew up in a place that's below sea level so in new orleans and so the waters above and the waters below really didn't get separated. There, there's a mix there, and there's also quite a bit of chaos in that city too. Um, some of it's uh, some of it's fun, but some of it's that city has some problems too, and there's a lot of chaos there. I had a friend who wanted to do her dissertation at Loyola University, which I, I, I think that's where you taught. I did teach there, yeah. She decided not to. She got her PhD somewhere else. She said that nobody ever wrote in New Orleans. They they go there to exp- to live, and then they go somewhere else so they can write about it. That's that can be true. There are some writers there that have lived there. Um, Walker Percy. Uh, he, he actually didn't live most of the time. He lived in Covington, which is Covington. which is north of there. Um, that's a good Tennessee point. Williams. Sure, Tennessee Williams. There are there are some exceptions. But I think part of the problem with being a writer in New Orleans, and I 
I read Walker Percy's uh, biography, and one of the things he said is, is the city uh, consumes you, and you start writing about the city in a way that's um, maybe a little bit trite, or you start writing in a way that's, um, um, I don't know, you, being inside of it maybe forms your art in a way that maybe being outside of it and looking in um, gives you a better perspective on you uh, you live near Washington DC now is that right I do um, so as you mentioned in the introduction about five years ago I I got separated and and my marriage was annulled and that's that's uh, for a whole nother podcast episode but um the uh, I, I worked for a little while as a computer programmer for a government contractor and then um, I decided I wanted something else, and so I went and entered a Jesuit novitiate in Grand Coteau, Louisiana, for about four months. Not very long. felt felt long, but it was only four months. But uh, while I was there, I realized that I um, had some family up on the East Coast, my, my sister and, and my niece here in D.C., and then my brother and his family and um, their two kids, uh, he and his wife and their two kids in Philly. And so I thought, well, you know what? I... I really want to move up closer to them for a little while. So I moved to the D.C. area, and uh, I've lived here for a couple years now. And it's quite different than the Deep South, but um, yeah, I would but say I'm so. enjoying it. <laughs> you know what they say about D.C. is that it's it's got um, southern efficiency and northern charm. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, to what extent do you continue to think of yourself as a New Orleans musician? I think very much so. Um, I don't do the typical New Orleans music that the tourists go down to hear. I don't do um, the trad jazz. I don't do like the gypsy swing thing. I don't do the brass band music. I, I don't really, really play the funky rhythm and blues. But I think that being being from there and growing up there and uh, being a kid uh, in the 70s and, and 80s in New Orleans um, really had a strong influence on me. And I, I think that a lot of my my rhythmic approach, even though it's folky music, is um, is really rooted in um, in that feel, which is behind the beat. Um, I don't really always do what's called the big four in brass band music as far as the rhythm, but but there is a a behind the beat, laid back feel uh, that I that I use in a lot of my songs. I think the instrumentation that I want on my records is a lot uh, from the city. On the record, I use some clarinet and some trombone and. Um, some other bluesy type sounds like uh, a little slide guitar and a little um, harmonica. But um, I think that uh, as far as uh, songwriters go, there isn't really an audience for songwriting and and listening to lyrics attentively and soberly in New Orleans. It doesn't work. So, no, I would imagine not. Yeah, and so what I do is not really what people go to New Orleans to hear, but I think that there is an element of the feel of what I'm doing that comes from there and nowhere else, although it's very different than what most people consider New Orleans music. Have you found the audiences in Washington, D.C. to be more receptive to that? A little bit, yeah. There's, there's more of an audience for house concerts. There are more venues where people sit at tables and, and are quiet when they listen to the, the band or the, the songwriter. And there's some of that, sure. There's uh, – D.C. is um, 
it's a good town for for songwriters. The East Coast in general. I, I don't know. I don't know about DC specifically, but I think the East Coast in general is is better. Um, there there are people who listen more closely to what you're singing about rather than maybe listening with their hips like they do in the South. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I live I live in Atlanta and I grew up here and I I feel like um. I feel like there are a number of places here to go and hear that sort of thing. Like Eddie's Attic. Eddie's Attic is exactly what I had in mind, yeah. Yeah. But then you, you go somewhere like Athens. I, I got my PhD from the University of Georgia, and, and the clubs there, I, I don't feel like there's a great audience for sitting and listening quietly. I, I, I wonder if it's just uh, the more alcohol is served at a place, the less the less people are going to be receptive to singer-songwriters. Well, you, you nailed it. I mean, it all has to do with alcohol sales the the popular music industry not not so much radio but the live music industry has to do with alcohol sales there's there's no, no doubt about it in my mind um i know i know bartenders who say um you know having a band there's no different than having ladies night it's like how much money can we make at the bar because that's that's where they that's where they make their money and that's how they pay their rent and so there's a lot of different styles of music that sell alcohol in different ways you can have really nice jazz music that's cocktail music, but it's going to sell martinis and wine instead of beer or or mixed drinks. Um, and to get to get young adults out to to hear bands and for those bands to get popular, they have to play at places more than once. And if they only play once and they don't do well at the bar, they're probably not going to get asked back. And so, um, yeah, I mean the the South in particular uh, has a you know, there's great music traditions in the South. I mean, you've got Muscle Shoals, you've got New Orleans, you've got Athens, you know, you've got Gainesville, you've got all kinds of uh, music towns, Memphis, Nashville. Um, Memphis and Nashville are a little, or Nashville's a little different than, than those others that I mentioned. But there's really not a listening audience between Houston and Atlanta. There's a couple little house concert um, series, like there's one called Sundilla that's pretty good, very good actually, in um, Alabama. And there's a few others, but really there's not a culture of going out to sit and listen to songs as much as there is to go out and drink. And there happens to be a band there too. Yeah. I, I, I just can't imagine how frustrating that would be. I well, remember seeing you... Jeff Tweedy once. I saw I saw Jeff Tweedy once in Lincoln, Nebraska, from from Wilco, yeah. and he um, yeah. people people were talking, and he got so mad that he stopped the concert and started yelling at everybody to shut up. <laughs> so, but I guess when you're I guess when you're that level, you can do that without alienating everybody. I would think a smaller singer songwriter wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to get away with that. Yeah. Well, well, you can't really do that is um, in general. But what you can do is you can write a song that makes fun of those people. And so if they're not going to listen, you can just sing and make fun of them. So, like, for example, I have a song called Nobody's Listening, which is what I pull out in that very situation where I just sing the song and I have a good chuckle to myself because uh, the song's about nobody listening. Or Mose Allison has a great song that he used for that purpose called Your Mind is on Vacation. And he goes, your mind is on vacation and your mouth is working overtime. And um, so there, there are ways around it. But yeah, there's, there's really no point in getting angry at the crowd. And, and as you get older, you just, you just come to expect it depending on where the venue is. And um, luckily, I, I don't, um, I don't play music full time. It's not my full time profession. It's something. I'm an amateur. I'm 
in well, I'm semi-professional, but I'm I what they say about amateurs is the word amateur comes from the same word as lover, and so I do it because I love it, and so um, I can pick and choose the places I want to play. But I know a lot of musicians who have to pay their bills with their music and. It's frustrating because they have to take gigs that they don't want and play in crowds that aren't very appreciative. It does get it does get a little frustrating, but then you just either let let it not bother you or you just pick the gigs where you know it's going to be better. Sure. Well, let's return to your uh, your discernment period with the Jesuits. You, you have sure. an essay about this album on your website that I would encourage everybody to go read. But you, you say that you wrote Dusty Old Clock, which I think is one of the best songs on this record. You, you wrote Thanks. that during the middle of your discernment period. And you, you say I did. in that essay, sometimes God puts a desire in your heart that is very real, but not always for the reasons you initially think. I was supposed to go there, I truly believe, but only to learn that I was not supposed to stay. What do you mean yeah. by that, and how does it fit in with that song? Well, I think that sometimes sometimes God puts a desire in your heart that's very real. You know, maybe he, he, he's, he, you hear it very loudly and clearly that, that there's this calling of something that you're supposed to go do. But you can't always presume that you know the reason why that desire is in your heart. The desire might be very real, and so you go explore it, but, but you come out the other side realizing that you presumed all along that you knew why, why that desire was there. And a lot of times you reflect on it later and you realize that something much bigger and better came out of it than what you thought you were going to get out of it in the beginning. And as far as that song goes, uh, that was a really, that was a breakthrough song for me because I hadn't written in a long time, uh, few years more than a few years and um i just started off with this three four simple chord progression and uh and i just i wanted to start with a physical object i I didn't want to start with an idea i wanted to start with an object and so i just thought about time but then i thought well how do you represent time with a physical object and so it became it turned into a song about a clock and then um some of the ideas about time and the clock um, some of the ideas about time came through the clock into the song and yeah I love that song too I'm, I'm really, really happy that I wrote it and I think it turned out great. there's a dusty old clock it's two hands are frozen on a shelf in my closet for who knows how long I'm so glad that I found it Right twice a day Even if the rest of the time is wrong I have two hands I have a face Stuck in time but still getting older Funny I Still don't have a place I've tried Uptown and Fairhope And Tickfaw and Boulder And if I don't take my The, the melody of that song just kills me the, the, the second verse where you sing about all the places you've lived The way your voice goes up and down during that section I, I don't know how to describe it But it's, uh, it's wonderful And I'm sure I've put in a clip here for everybody to hear it Oh good, thanks so much 
I've been steering this conversation so far, but here on Christian Humanist Profiles, in the spirit of hospitality, we like to give our guests <laughs> the last word. What haven't we said here that you'd like our listeners to know? I think the main thing that I, I feel and I would like to communicate to people is that when we are creating, uh, when we are, when there's a playfulness in our creating, we are, it's, it's recreation in the sense that we are recreating with God. And I think that if you exclude God from the process, you might, you might skillfully make something. But if you can prayerfully include God into the process, then it's true recreation. It's true uh, participation in his creative power. And then he can use that in a, in a lot di- more different ways than, uh, than maybe just writing something that's, um, that's vain and, and excludes him. I've always liked the idea that I, I first heard it from Madeline Lingle. I don't know if she made it up or what, but she, she says there's no such thing as secular art, that if it's real art, it's religious on some level because of because of that process of recreation, recreation. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think I read A Wrinkle in Time by her in grade school, uh, but I, I, uh, I'm not really familiar with 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 her philosophical work, but um, but I think she's right in that sense uh, that that there is there is a religious element to uh, to any type of creation for sure. Well, and the flip side of that is that if it's not real art, no matter how surface level religious religious it is, it's not really religious. It's product or whatever else you want to call it. Yeah, and then there's the flip side of people really trying to cram philosophy into their art. Like like the first person that comes to mind is Anne Rand. I mean, if you ever read any of her novels, it's like, like her characters are just a mouthpiece for her philosophy, and, it, and they just they ram it down your throat. Um, so there's a balance there. There's um, the the balance of it including your religion and your your philosophical take on life, but really trying to skillfully put the art first. Yeah, and and I mean we we've talked about how the artist has a has a job to do in creating it, but in some ways the art creates itself outside of the the artist's will at the same time, wouldn't you say? I think there's a part of that, sure. And I think that's where the idea of grace comes in, to come back to that. I think that um, I think that grace can inspire us and, and point us, us towards something that, that's already there, and it's up to us to, to shape it and to form it and to make something out of it. We've been talking to Burke Ingrafia about his latest album, Waves, which is available now in physical and digital form from his website, which is makingwaves.online. You can also find him on Twitter at Burke Ingrafia. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Visit our website at christianhumanist.org and follow us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. Thanks for listening.